Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us again today. It's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, you're listening later, you're watching later. Um, I'm glad that you chose to be part of our worship experience today uh, or later in your week whenever you're able to connect with us. My name is Corey, if we haven't met, and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC, and I'm excited that we get to move into fall together and start a brand new series. I hope that you've enjoyed some of the fall things we've already talked about. I think Pastor Andrew was talking about that. My favorite fall thing is football, and so I hope that maybe some of you are enjoying that as well. Uh, College football this weekend was a lot of fun, but we're starting this new conversation called What If the Church Looked More Like Jesus? And to be honest, this conversation is a little bit of a labor of love for me. This is a conversation and a thought process and something that has kind of been around in my brain and my heart for a long time. As I've watched, I grew up in church and I've watched my friends grow up in church. I've watched people I thought I knew or thought I I connected with uh, be a part of the church and then maybe not be a church. And and to kind of think through what's happening uh, in, in culture and in church and kind of how those two things either mesh together or don't and what we can do, what's the conversation we can have to help us get to the point where we are being the church in a way that's different than it's been before. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and I may have said it before, but the invention of the internet is the equivalent of kind of the invention of the printing press, right? It changed everything. And so we live in a culture where, you know, you look at how we did church 20, 30 years ago, and what that culture looked like, and then you fast forward and go, okay, what do we do today? How does that work for us, and how do things need to look different? So I want to start off, I want to ask a couple of questions, and you can kind of process this in your own mind and think through how you see this or how you've experienced this. The first question is, what tension do you feel between church and culture? What's the tension there that you've seen? And I'll be honest, when I was a kid, and maybe some of you had this experience, when I was growing up in youth group, middle school, high school, here's what they taught us, right? You, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you kind of make sure you stay over here in this lane, And the world is going to tell you that you can do X, Y, and Z things that you shouldn't do, like smoke and drink and sleep around and that kind of thing. They're like, just don't do those things and like stay over here. And that's what the culture is going to tell you you should do, but you shouldn't. And so the line was kind of clear at that point because you saw those things as kind of like sinful things, right? So getting drunk, smoking, doing drugs, sleeping around, like all of that was sin, and so, yeah, well, of course I'm going to stay away from sin. And that was the tension that was kind of in, in what I grew up in. But here's how it's changed, right? Now it's not just sin issues or what we think are sin issues. It's topics and it's movements and it's theories. And so now all of a sudden we have to kind of choose, okay, on which side of this am I going to choose and, how, and where am I going to land on this? And here's what gets really confusing. Like most of my friends growing up, even if we went to a different youth group, if we grew up in church, it was kind of like, oh yeah, we're not going to do drugs or get drunk or anything like that, right? But now it's like churches have picked different sides. So now the church is on different sides of different issues and we have to kind of figure out, okay, it's not just sin anymore. How do we figure out this tension where people outside the church are also looking at us and going, what is the church going to do? And how has the church interacted with these things? I wanted to share a few statistics as we start our conversation today. Um, and these quotes are from a Barna study uh, that was done, and then Kerry Newhoff wrote a, an article on it and kind of gave these um, quotes as he processed the information. So the first thing is this. They're up on the screen for you. 80% of practicing Christians have a positive view of the church. Only 21% of non-Christians think of the church in a positive way. So let's time out first on the 
right? That means like 20% of you sitting here don't even like us, right? I'm just kind of kidding. But like at the same time, there's 20% of the church that says we don't view the church in a positive light. But then you look at the 21% of non-Christians think of church, so there's, there's a large portion of people outside the church who don't even just look at us in a positive light. So that's, that's worrisome, right? Let's go to the next one. 85% of Christians trust the Christian pastors in their community. Less than half of non-Christians feel the same way. Now, I, what I don't want to say is, oh, well, you should trust me more because I'm a pastor, right? That's not the case. However, years ago, right, in, in culture the way it was, usually if you met a pastor versus someone else, it was like automatically, like, well, at least the pastor is like trying to do something good with their life. I trust that they have a higher calling. I trust that they answer to a higher authority. So there was just kind of that idea. That idea is, is, is just dropping. And I know pastors who don't even want people to know their pastors when they first meet them because of the way they treat them differently. And then this is true too. Millennials are twice as likely as boomers to think their church is detached from the real issues facing their community. And so when they look at the church, millennials, people my age and even and younger, those generations are looking at church and saying, you're detached. You don't understand your community. You're not engaging in community the way that the church is supposed to. And so we've got a little bit of this negative view of church that ends up getting into the mix. And I don't think this is necessarily new. Like no one's sitting here going, I can't believe people don't like the church or have frustrations with the church or think this, right? We've kind of been on this trend, but things have shifted a little bit differently. And there's this word that kind of floats around in our culture, especially in Christian culture. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you haven't heard it. Maybe you're just not sure what to do with it, but it's the word deconstruction, and so what is deconstruction and, and why is it happening? And I want to explain it just a little bit. It, it kind of is around like people my age and, and a little bit younger, a little bit older. There was this movement and it continues to happen where people were, who grew up in church, like myself, like many of us, have gone through and now come to, you know, they go to college, they go to, they become young adults, they get married, and they look at what they were handed as their faith and they go, I don't know that this works for me anymore. I don't know if I believe it anymore. I don't know if I believe it just because my parents told me or my teacher told me or my pastor told me. And so they get to the point where it just doesn't make sense for them and they take their faith and they kind of set it aside. And some of them even respond to it and they go, they are viscerally against it. Like they, they recognize and say that they were mistreated, they were manipulated, they were abused and all that stuff. And so this is trickling down. And the way that this kind of found its way into, uh, into life was like we even look at, as I was in youth group, I would look at different pastors or bands or speakers or authors and even those people who were the leaders in that space at the time and we were reading their books and learning from them, they've walked away. And so there's this thing that deconstruction just kind of floats around in our culture, and especially for people that grew up in church. And so the question I want to ask is this, is how can the church impact this trend? When I was, you know, I keep talking about when I was younger. It's like, I keep talking about me. I'll stop talking about me in a little bit. But when I was younger, right, the idea was if you go to college and a professor teaches you something different than what the Bible teaches you, you might fall away. That was the phrase that was used. But what happens now is it's not just professors, it's not just anybody. Like I said, the internet has changed things where anybody from anywhere can have an opinion on anything and put it out there. And so now we have this space where we have to figure out what's true, what's not, and how do we influence people and hand them a faith that actually matches with who Jesus is so that when they get older, when we grow up, when we meet different circumstances in life, that that doesn't change in our view. And so I want to work through this. We're going to do this for about five weeks. And my hope is this. My hope is 
first of all, that we can engage as followers of Jesus and say, okay, how have we seen things done wrong? How can we do it better in the future? How can we be the kind of people that hand a faith down to others that connects with them for the long term? That they don't have to rethink it. They don't have to have a different, different view of Jesus. That we give them who Jesus actually is and help them understand that. And I hope that this finds its way to ears of people that maybe are thinking about deconstruction or maybe that don't know Jesus at all. And you get to listen in and, have, and just see how we have this conversation and say, what is the church actually talking about? And how does this church see the way that things should move forward? And so I hope if that finds you, if you are walking through deconstruction or you're just not a follower of Jesus, that you find this and you would engage with us in this conversation for a few weeks. So here's where we're going to start today with scripture. We're going to go to Luke chapter 24. And so again, if you would like to, you can scan the QR code on the back of the Next Steps card or on the screen. That'll take you to our follow along. You can do that. If you're watching live, you can do that as well. Um, And you can see all the verses and all the notes. You can ask a question. You can submit a prayer request. Please, again, I say this, ask a question. If I say something today and you're like, that doesn't make any sense to me, or I disagree with you, please ask the question. I would love to engage on that topic with you. So Luke chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 13. So verses 13 and 14 say this. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. Verses 15 and 16, as they talked and discussed these things... Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. So let's just pause for a minute. This is right after the resurrection, okay? So Jesus has just, he just was crucified. He just rose again. We get that story where the disciples and the ladies find the empty tomb, and then we fast forward a little bit, and Jesus finds these two guys walking to Emmaus on a seven-mile journey, and he starts talking with them, but they don't know who he is. They don't know yet that there was an empty tomb. So they have no idea that this is Jesus. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. This question literally stops them in their tracks. And they start to ask Jesus some questions. In verse 18, says, Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. Translation, you must live under a rock, right? How do you not know? This gives us some information that, from Cleopas that when Jesus was crucified, everybody knew about it. This wasn't a secret. This didn't happen off to one side of things and like there was another group that had no idea what was going on. Jerusalem knew what was going on with Jesus, Verse 19, what things, Jesus asked. He just kind of perpetuates the thing, right, to see what they're, hap- what they're talking about. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Verse 20, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the Messiah, who came to rescue Israel. This happened three days ago. I think this conversation that Jesus has with Cleopas and his buddy, it's kind of a microcosm of what happens when when we as followers of Jesus go through difficult things. And it's really, I think, the tension where some people today who have grown up in church or just know about Jesus or have claimed to be a follower of Jesus at some point in their life, they get to a moment of tension and they choose which way they're going to go. Now, we don't know exactly 
why Cleopas and his buddy are walking to Emmaus. We don't know. But at the same time, as we've studied it and looked around, the, the leading conversation is just simply, they were going home. They were going home. They had followed Jesus all this time, maybe for a couple of years, and all of a sudden everything changed, and they just said, well, back to what we know. Let's just go home. It's over. right? I, I, we, we're not going to do this anymore. We're just going to go back to where we came from. And there's a few things I, I, I want us to understand about this conversation and about what we can do with this. And I think there are some things as followers of Jesus that we need to get to the space where we recognize these things as true and they're kind of, to me, foundational for the way we move forward with our faith. And I want to say if there's anybody processing deconstruction or you know someone who is or you've engaged in that conversation, nothing I'm saying is to disparage anything you've experienced or felt. But at the same time, I want to say that I think these things have to be true if we are going to follow Jesus, and we have to recognize the truth, especially in this story that we just read. And the first thing I would say for, is this, that your plan for you and Jesus' plan for you are rarely identical. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes when we decide to follow Jesus, we decide we're going to go after him and we're going to build a relationship with him. We're going to go where he calls us, but we hand him the roadmap and we say, this is what I plan on doing, so take me there. The problem with that is we're not actually giving our life over to Jesus. We're saying, I want you to come along for the ride, Jesus, but I also want to make sure I go where I get to go. And what I'm saying is rarely, if ever, when you decide to follow Jesus, does your life look like the life that you had necessarily planned. Just case in point, right? When Becca and I got married, we did not have on our roadmap bingo, like move to Pottstown and then move to Bowmansville. We didn't have it. We weren't against it, but we didn't have it on. We didn't know that it was going to happen. In fact, the very first time I ever went to Momentum with Gateway, so that, that's our youth conference that happens in our fellowship, right? I was with another church that's in the fellowship. We met for the bus in the New Holland parking lot. I had never been here before. I had, ne- I had no idea. What, I knew Tim like a little bit. We, this is where we met. If you told me I would be the pastor here, I don't know, eight, nine years later, whatever it is, I would have called you crazy because I didn't know, right? I didn't have any idea that this is where I would be. And yet that was Jesus' plan for me. And so we have to recognize that sometimes the way we plan life to work out isn't where Jesus is going to lead us. And if we continue to hold on to the roadmap and try and tell Jesus where to take us, that's going to cause some tension that's not going to work out. That's going to be a problem. Because we're always going to be pulling against Jesus and God's plan for us. And then we're going to have to choose which way we go. Do we stay in the difficulty, or do we decide to kind of take our ball and go home and walk away? The second thing I would say is this, that the people you trust and and people in leadership are going to let you down. And I don't say that to say if somebody has let you down or you've had a frustration with a leader or someone has even abused or manipulated you, I'm not saying that to excuse it, right? That's not the case. But at the same time, we have to see people as others who are going to make mistakes. They're not perfect. And sometimes what happens is we have conversations we see in the news, we see online, whatever. Another leader has fallen away or another pastor walks away or another pastor quits or another leader does X, Y, and Z. But look at the guys on the road to Emmaus. What did they say? They said, we thought Jesus was amazing and our leaders that we trusted, they killed him. And they failed. They did. 
But here's what also is true. Their failure didn't change who Jesus was. And so sometimes we have to look at human leaders and say, we're going to screw up. Like, I'm going to screw up. Like, it's going to happen. I'm going to make a mistake, right? I'm not perfect. And yet we can share grace with one another and say we recognize that we are not perfect people, but that there's times where we are sinful human beings, and that comes out. And so we have grace with one another. So we can't put leaders on a pedestal that just to fall off of and then to say, well, when they fall, that we're going to walk away from them. There should be this mutual grace that happens as well. And I would also say this, that your vision or my vision for the world will never be the same as Jesus' vision for the world. There's times in life where we get to the point where we go, well, I don't know why God did that. I don't understand it. Why would he do this? Why would he allow that? If he's good, if he is righteous, right? If he's in control, how come all these things happen? And, and those are good questions, and I ask those questions. But here's what I also know to be true, right? God has given me and you about a postage size stamp of responsibility in the universe, right? So for me, like, I have a family. I'm, I'm a pastor here. Uh, I, I coach at times. I do different things. Like, I'm in charge of my kids. Like, that kind of thing. Like, we get to be responsible for whatever God has given us. And it's about this big, right, compared to the rest of the universe. And we still screw that up, right? We still make mistakes. We still make a wrong decision. We still have the wrong motivation. But then we turn around and go, I can't believe God and all of his infinite wisdom can't understand things the way that I see them. That doesn't make any sense. If it made sense, then we would be the ones responsible for doing all of those things. But we recognize, at least we should, that we don't match up even in the small little minute things we've been given compared to what God is in charge of. And so when we look at the world and we go, my vision or my view or what I think is right or wrong is correct and God should do that thing, we're, we're getting the roles mixed up. We're putting ourselves in a place we shouldn't be. And the last thing that I would say, and this is where I kind of want us to land, I want us to hold on to this and I want us to process this as we go through this conversation is this, that Jesus must become Lord and not just Savior. Now, some of you are going to go, that sounds weird, Corey. What does that mean? Here's, let me help you understand, right? Let, let's just imagine that you were drowning at some point, right? You're in a pool or you're in the ocean and it gets deeper or there's an undertow or something like that, right? You're in trouble. This would be me. I'm not a good swimmer, okay? So if, if I got in trouble, like I would need someone to jump in and save me. And so someone does jump in to save me and pulls me out, right? And if that happened to me or you, we would automatically be like eternally grateful to that person, right? That would be something that we would celebrate. We would want to, if we didn't know them, we would want to know their name. We would want to be excited about that. If, if we knew that person or we got to know that person better and we had to introduce them to somebody else, what would we say? We would say, hey, this is my friend Johnny. He saved my life, right? That would be like the first thing out of our mouth. We would be happy and excited to introduce people to the person who saved us and we would be eternally grateful to that person. Here's what be, would be really weird, though. If that person showed up at your door every morning and was like, here's the list of things to do for today. Or here's what you're going to be doing. Here's, here's what you're wearing. Here's where I need you to go. Here's what I need you to do. You'd look at that person and be like, wait a minute. Like, you saved my life, but you don't, you don't like, get to run my life. You don't get to be the one who tells me what to do. You don't get to be the one who shows up and makes all the rules for me. And I think this is the way we treat Jesus sometimes. We go, yes, you saved me from hell, but you don't get to tell me how to live after that. 
And this is the difference between Savior and Lord. The person who saves us, yeah, we're excited about that person. And we may even say, yeah, we go to church and we invite other people to church and we're excited to tell them about Jesus. But then when it really comes down to it, we go, but I'm going to make my own decisions and I don't want to live like Jesus is my Lord. I just want him to be my Savior. I want him to keep me from going to a bad place. But I don't want to look like him every single day. This is the tension where people look at the church and go, you don't even believe what you say. Because we get really good at looking at other people and saying, you're a sinner and you need to repent and change from what you do. And repentance is a massive part of the gospel. Like that has to happen. We can't set that aside. But then we don't go any further than that. And once someone just says, okay, I won't sin anymore. I I know Jesus. We kind of, we've had a bad habit, not just our church, but the church as a whole. We've had a bad habit of just going, okay, you raised your hand, you stood up, and now we're going to move forward and just live like Jesus. But there's no discipleship that actually happens. And discipleship is the process of Jesus being our Lord and not just the guy who saved us from hell. And the problem here is that A lot of people have a good opinion of Jesus. In fact, if we look at verse 19 again of Luke 24, Jesus says what things, right? And they say, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they say he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Here's what, in my experience, this is true. Almost everyone is somewhat impressed with Jesus. Almost everybody. If people would say, even if they don't believe he existed, they're like, if he did exist and he actually lived this way, that's pretty good. Like if we just take the teachings of Jesus and, and live those out, those aren't bad. Even if you don't believe in Jesus at all, you usually look at who Jesus was and if it was true and go, that's actually, he's a pretty good dude. But at the same point, some of us never move past that. We're impressed with him. We want the benefits of the relationship with him, but that doesn't equate to him being Lord of our lives. And just being impressed with him doesn't mean that we ultimately trust him. Because many people will do that, even if they don't believe in him, but they won't hand their life over to him. Uh, David understood this in Psalm 23.1, right? He said this, this was the first verse of Psalm 23, one of the most famous Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. Same word, Lord. He's in control. I have it. I have everything I need. He's the one I trust. I have everything I need. He's going to lead me. I have everything I need. There's nothing else to add. And the question is, do we actually believe that? And do we live it out? Another passage I want to go to today is John chapter 6. And John chapter 6 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It, it's massive, and there's a lot in there. Let me just explain to you what happened before we get into the verses we're going to read. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And it's probably more than that, right? Because that's 5,000 men. So there's probably women and kids. And so there, it could be 10, 15,000 people that Jesus feeds, right? From a little kid's lunchbox, right? A little third grader shows up with a lunchbox and he feeds everybody. And so that's a big deal. For those 10,000 people, let's just call it that, 5,000 people, they, they figure that out and they're like, this is pretty sweet. In fact, I'm pretty sure there was someone in that crowd that went, okay, listen, there's 15,000 of us. If we all just do like the meal train and we all just show up with a lunch once every like 10,000 days, we're in pretty good shape, right? Because Jesus will just take that and feed everybody and we're good. So here's what happens. They follow him. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He goes across the lake and they follow him around to the other side. And this is where we start the conversation in John 6, verse 26. 
says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand the miraculous signs. He goes, I know why you're here. I gave you free lunch, and now you're back for more. But this was a setup. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He was inviting them in to understand something even deeper. In verse 27, he says, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of approval. He goes on 28 and 29. They, rep- they replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. See, when the people show up, they're, very, they're concerned about two things. They're concerned about getting some more food and they want to be able to do what Jesus can do. They're very concerned about who? Themselves. What can we get out of this? And Jesus says, you have one job. Follow me. Believe in me. That's your job. You do that, the other things will follow. But that's what you have to worry about first. We're going to bounce around a little bit in this chapter. We're going to keep going down, but we're going to skip some sections. So we're going to go down to verse 35. And 36, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will, be, will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. Verses 37, 38. However, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. This is the example Jesus gives. He goes, this isn't about me. This is about me doing the will of the Father. So even in following Jesus, he gives us this example of we get to set aside the roadmap, right? When we decide to follow Jesus, we're saying my stuff goes to the side. And what Jesus wants comes to the center. And Jesus, we know he said this here. And then in the garden, right, he says to God, not my will, but yours be done. It was not something he wanted to do to go to the cross. But at the same time, he would be obedient in that. And he's teaching these people, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you. It's about following me. Verses 41 and 42. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, this is Jesus. Isn't, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father's mother. How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Now this is, this is interesting, and I try not to look at people in the Bible and be like, they're so silly, right? Because we would do the exact same thing. But here's what they just saw. They're saying, we just saw you feed everybody from a little kid's lunch, right? We're back for more. We want to be able to do the miraculous things you do. And then when Jesus says, it's a little bit more complicated than that, they go, we don't trust you. We know your mommy and daddy, right? They go, what I understand about this world is more important than the guy that just fed all these people and can do these amazing things. They say, my, my worldly understanding of this is greater than what Jesus is telling me to do. And they get stuck. Even though they've seen these incredible things, they still won't trust him because they know who his mom and dad are. They just don't see it. In verses 47 and fi- through 50, it says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats The bread from heaven, however, will never die. It's important. He says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. He's like, the belief is is the first part, right? You have to take that step, but then there's steps that come after that where you have to continually follow me. That discipleship process has to happen, and there's difficulty in that. It's not easy. 
We go down to verses 66 to 67. He says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you going to leave? There was a lot of people following Jesus, right? There were thousands of people there probably. And some people had been following him. They're not one, some of the 12 disciples, but there's other people around that have been following him. Maybe, maybe Cleopas and his buddy, maybe they were there for this. And they walk away because they can't handle it. And so Jesus looks at the 12 and says, are you going to leave? And this is where Peter speaks up. And sometimes when Peter speaks up, it's a little dangerous. But Peter speaks up in this moment, and it's really, really good. He starts his next sentence with, it says, Simon Peter replied, Lord. Sometimes when people address Jesus, they say, teacher, right? That's kind of a way of saying, I think you believe good things. I think you teach good things. I think you're a good dude, but I'm not ready to call you Lord. Peter steps up and he says, Lord, he gets it. And he goes on and he says this, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. He says, I, I get it. Like, you're not just the guy who teaches good stuff. You're the guy who deserves it all. You're the guy who, I, I can't go anywhere else. Where else would I go? I'm not going to go follow somebody else. They don't have it. I'm not going to go do my own thing because I don't get it. I'm going to make sure I follow you. And this is the place we have to get as followers of Jesus. To whom shall we go? Who, who else is going to give us what Jesus gives us? And when we find that space, we then begin to call him Lord and we give him rule and reign over our lives. So here's what I would say to us, right? When we, we, we have to get to this space. If we don't get to this space and understand this like Peter did in John chapter 6, people are going to see that from outside the church and go, you don't actually believe what you say you believe. Because you don't live the way that you say you're supposed to live. And people that maybe, the kids downstairs, right, kids like kids that I grew up with will be handed this version of Jesus, and we're very careful about this, that we don't just want to get them to the point where we go, do you know that you're a sinner and going to hell, and we just pray a prayer with them, and then we just move on? Like, we try and instill in them this deep understanding that this isn't just fire insurance, it's a way to understand the God who knows and loves you. And when you hand your life over to him, it's the most incredible thing you could ever do. Because when you understand this, no one else can come in and claim to have something better than Jesus, but they have to know exactly who Jesus actually is. And those people that walked away, they didn't have that full picture yet. And here's the thing I want to say too. Just because we act this way doesn't mean everybody's going to believe, right? Because people walked away from Jesus. So people are going to walk away. But if they walk away, it should be because they don't understand or because they don't want to hand their life over to Jesus yet. And we can't control that. The reason they, but they shouldn't walk away because of what they see the church doing or people who follow Jesus and see that as a hindrance to following him. Here's what I would say. If the church looked more like Jesus, Others would see a group surrendered to Jesus rather than people who leverage his name. We all know people that leverage Jesus' name, right? If we watch uh, speeches from either side of the political aisle, they're both going to claim Jesus, right? They both use scripture. They'll both talk. Maybe they'll bring up the name of Jesus, right? They'll, they'll bring up stuff and just they'll leverage him on both sides. 
People leverage Jesus all the time to move their cause forward, to move whatever. Our job is not to leverage his name and make ourselves look better or get ourselves that relationship or get ourselves the benefits of who Jesus is. Our goal is to be surrendered to him. And when people see that, even if they disagree with us, it's not going to be because they see us living something that we are being hypocrites about. It's at least that they'll see it and they'll go, I just don't believe what you believe, but I believe you believe it. I believe you're genuine. I believe you're kind. I believe you live this out for sure. That's who we need to be. It's people that are surrendered to Jesus rather than people who leverage his name. And so here's the last question I have. We wrap up for today and we slingshot into the next four weeks of this conversation, which are going to give us a little bit more of a a hold on what, what this looks like. I understand that today is a little bit more like up here, like being surrendered to Jesus isn't necessarily completely tangible and you can grab on and move through your week. We're going to do that over the next four weeks. But here's the last question I would ask. If the church looked more like Jesus, how would it change you? And I ask this for people that are, are not followers of Jesus. I ask this for people who are followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if the church looked more like Jesus, would it change your perception of the church? Right? Would it change your perception of Jesus if the church looked more like Jesus? Would it be something that you would maybe want to engage in or, or engage in a different way? And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, if the church looked more like Jesus, how would you engage differently? Would it draw you to different things? Would you be in, involved in more places? And that's not just to put more stuff on your calendar, but would you see it as more of this, I'm going to love others the way that Jesus loves them? And really the question is, are we surrendered to him? Is he our Lord still? Or is he simply our Savior? Because the challenge is people are going to be able to tell the difference whether they're followers of Jesus or not. I know the next few weeks, you know, with fall, schedules get crazy. And, and sometimes priorities are moving around and doing different things and whatever. I, I would challenge you, be here. And if you're not here, you're connecting online. Like, let's have this conversation, because here's what I want. I want our church, right now I am talking about just us. Like, I want GFC to be the type of church that people look at and they go, those people believe what they say they believe. Those people live what they say they believe. Those people actually do try and look like Jesus. They're not going to necessarily agree with us all the time or say that they, we're on the same side, but they're going to look at us and they're going to go, those people, man, at least I know they're not hypocrites. At least I know I can trust them. At least I know when I come here, no matter what I believe, I am loved. That's what I want. And that's what I think Jesus calls us to, that we would be surrendered to him. Let's pray. Lord, we... We're grateful that you have chosen us even though we are not perfect. We're grateful that we get to be your church and that you've given us a mission. We're grateful that you've put us here at a time that, that for some of us may seem like is just crazy and we don't know what to do with it and we don't know how to respond. And we do, but you've chosen us on purpose to be the church at this exact time in this exact place. And I ask that we would step up to that. I ask that you would be Lord to us and not just the person who saved us. That you would rule every day and that we would be completely surrendered to you. I pray that would be the case so that we honor and glorify you, but also so that 
people outside the church would look at us and see a difference. That we wouldn't be the hindrance to people following you. That we would be a bridge for them to understand just how much you love them. I pray that you would help us to encourage and sharpen one another in this as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.